Hey, everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. Good evening and welcome to the Dark Ozarks. Hello, everybody. Hello, Lisa. Hey, Josh. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone's having a great evening. Absolutely. We thank everybody for joining us and and joining us just in this continuing uh, pilgrimage of of research and uh, investigative processes into the the culture and history of the Ozarks, particularly with uh, an emphasis on the noir, the weird and the paranormal, which is an extraordinary amount of fun. And uh, it's it's exciting that uh, so many people have uh, have joined us in that process yes i mean and 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 made it a, a community i mean um very humbling it really really is and of course as part of that community uh, our autumn season is about to kick off in which you all can join us in person uh, and uh, get to visit in person at a wide variety of locations across the Ozarks, beginning this Saturday, September 17th, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at uh, Hollister, Missouri, at the State of the Ozarks Fest. Yes, and I think you have a visual effect. <laughs> I do, for those, for those following on the video cast, who just happen to have a poster here. <laughs> just happened to this happened and, and uh, it's a great event it really is it is of course if you are uh, uh just listening on uh, the branson podcast network on soundcloud uh, etc you uh and if you are in the branson area of the white river country you should be seeing a lot of these posters and flyers out and about several thousand of them to be specific <laughs> that uh uh, and we're, we're really looking forward to it. This is uh, State of the Ozarks' largest annual event. It is the sixth year of the festival. It is, of course, my sixth year. I'm the uh, event creator. It is your sixth year. You've been down for every single event. Yep. And uh, lots and lots of fun. Of course, the, the roster of uh, entertainment and vendors is published on stateofthezarks.net. You can check that out. That went online. Finalized public version went online. Uh, just on Sunday. And uh, we've got great sponsors. We've got great food. It is a beautiful historic location. And right at the moment, uh, weather looks really, really positive. Mid-80s and sunny. It's going it's, it's to be great. And Dark Ozarks is going to be there. So Yes, yes. Uh, our books will be there. We will be there along with our books. Um, my my box of books showed up in the mail a couple of days ago. Mine too. It's <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you order them ahead of time. Who knew? Uh, did not realize that how that worked. Uh, <laughs> order things in advance and, you know... Shows up. Who knew? Uh, this has escaped me so many times before, but here we are. And we'll be, uh, it's a great event. Uh, Order of the Red Boar will be fighting in traditional 15th century medieval combat between at uh, noon and at five in the current schedule. And uh, they also want you to know they are mercenaries. There are, there is no royalty amongst the Order of the Red Boar uh, at present. They have far as i know they've not accepted any anyone of that of that nature they've always been mercenaries they are available for hire and 
Yeah. They have not pledged to a league. Huh? No, no. They have remained delightfully unencumbered. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> they, are, they, are, they are consistently unreformed. <laughs> That's great. No, it really is a good event. Um, Ten to six, free to the public. And yes. uh, come on down. We'd love, love to see you. We are looking forward to it. Then the following Saturday, (laughs) what you're doing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The following Saturday, we will be in Caney, Kansas, for the SCK Bordertown Paracon. Yes, and I'm excited to get there. I've never been into the little Ozarks, as they're oftentimes called, a section of Kansas Mm -hmm. that uh, is actually new to me. And to me, it's a huge honor. Uh, we're invited along with some other other folks and some great folks to be on the, on the panels. And great event. I'm, I'm, you were there last year. I was not able to attend. We'll both be there this year. We just invite folks to to come out and see what's going on. And I I love the the the, the nuts and bolts uh, on the ground aspect of things like paranormal investigation. And uh, it's just it's uh, it's a it's a neat aspect of our culture that many people might be surprised to find is, you know, really a, a developing genre. It, it really it really is. And um, uh, anyone that's interested, if they go over to Facebook uh, to the S.E.K. Bordertown Paranormal page, you can find details Um for um, the dead location and, and uh, itinerary. And I know we're going to be on panels throughout the day. So um, it's going to be interesting. And then October 7th, we are back at Hollister. Yes, back in my adopted hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hollister, first Friday art walk hosted by State of the Ozarks. And Dark Ozarks is going to be having a haunted Hollister walking tour that night, beginning. We meet at Yield English Inn at 7.30 p.m. Tickets mm-hmm. are available on paranormalsciencelive.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's I'm very excited to be back for this event. It's going to be a three-part event with uh, a walking and history tour regarding Taney and uh, the White River Hills. Mm-hmm. Then uh, some of the anecdotal haunting reports uh, of, uh, of Downing Street itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditional Ozarks storytelling at our 1909 Edwardian era um, uh, railroad depot, which is mm-hmm. beautiful. Absolutely really beautiful. Does. And... Uh, I was going to say beautifully restored, but I'm just going to say beautifully preserved. It has been taken care of very well since its opening and uh, and continues to be well taken care of to this day. And then an extensive um, tour of the historic E. Old English Inn, as well as a survey investigation of uh, paranormal activity. Yes, that's a, that's going to be a lot of fun. And then on the 20, no, on the 15th of October, we will be in Joplin at uh, the VFW Post uh, 534 for uh, Dark Ozarks October Country, which is going to be a day-long event um, where we delve into everything under our umbrella um, of uh, Dark Ozarks, from dark history to mysteries to 
a paranormal related um, uh, items. A lot of activity. Uh, I will be arriving as the Ozarks Howler, in case anyone wonders. Because why not? The uh, the Ozarks Howler is the bane of my existence, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm embracing my Anglo-Saxon, my deeply traditional Anglo-Saxon roots, uh, and uh, shamanic heritage by donning the pelt of my enemy. Some of each. Um, there's a number of unpleasant things that uh, that, that haunt my existence, and, uh, and the Ozark Howler is one of them. So, who knows? Well, it would be interesting to see what happens in that regard. Uh, I do have an excellent flowchart prepared for the occasion. I've seen it. He does. I know. <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, you have. And. Um, it's uh, it's quite impressive in its uh, <laughs> in its uh, stylistic design, and then uh, you know, in addition to that, something I'm impressed. We did a uh, uh, just a, a initial survey uh, mm-hmm. of uh, of the VFW post in Joplin. There, to me, because the 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 building itself the current building is comparatively modern it's not yes it's you know i mean it's not and a lot of things that happen there and other buildings too yes and a lot of things that have happened in that building over say the past 40 40 or 50 years Mm -hmm. and it to me it's a it's a great example we may dig into some of this theming uh, a little bit later you know a concept but buildings that look modern or you know are modern comparatively speaking that one doesn't visually associate with hauntings can have a lot of activity and the vfw hall is one of those locations it is and it, it it's just gonna be a lot of fun and we get you all involved and we want we want your input over there and uh we don't want to be talking heads and there's going to be refreshments and food so a great time Yeehaw. i uh, i saw some of the uh, some of the food that was coming out of the kitchen while we were doing the survey mm-hmm. and it looked really good so i'm looking forward to getting back and uh while i'm you know preparing my uh, my my extensive diagram on the ozark howler i'm going to be snuggling up close next to a giant cheeseburger there you go can't beat that and then, um, you know, oh, I guess uh, let's do a shout out to here at this point, because not only for the podcast and video cast is uh, always buying books a sponsor, but they're sponsoring October Country. So um, uh, always buying books in Joplin, uh, great resource for reading material, research, uh, high end collectible books, etc. Uh, check them out in person or online at alwaysbuyingbuds.net on Facebook, Always Buying Butts, and there are group friends uh, who like Always Buying Butts. And if you can't get by in person, you can order by phone, etc. So, and they will ship it to you. 
<laughs> yes. Or if you're Josh, you have me pick it up for you. <laughs> I was going to say, or, 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 or a great friend who just goes by and picks it up for you. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's good all the way around. So excited to be able to work with Bob and Elise. Fantastic place. Great curated collections. And if you are, of course, if you're in the area, just uh, just make the place uh, a regular stop. And if you are traveling on Route 66 or on I-44, mm-hmm. make it a regular stop on your way through. That's right. Let's see. And then after, after that, on um, October 20th, we will be back in Joplin. Yes. For the Old Joplin Downtown Walking Tour, which covers uh, history of Old Joplin and ghost stories of the downtown area. Uh, it's being held in conjunction with Third Thursday Art Walk, which is um, put on by the Joplin Downtown Alliance. And we love working with them because they are uh, do a lot of good work supporting the artisan community in the area, as well as being instrumental in a number of historic building restorations. So um, it's always good to uh, work with them and and proceeds uh, help benefit their efforts. So uh, come on out. It's always a good one. And it's going to be the first time. Yeah, I'm so excited about all of this. And then October 29th, Mm-hmm. Uh, we will be in Newtonia, Missouri, at the Ritchie Mansion, the community center, and the Civil War Cemetery. Yes, um, and I, I'm just, I'm just excited and humbled that this event keeps getting bigger and bigger every time we do it, and um, proceeds help uh, support preservation of the Ritchie Mansion. And we work in conjunction with the, uh, the Valfield Preservation Society. And um, there's going to be food. There's going to be refreshments. There's going to be lots of history and storytelling, um, tours, and then a paranormal uh, investigation demonstration. So um, <clears throat> it's well worth it. It is. And I, I'm, I'm thrilled that... I'm honored to get to come back and love the fact that a, such a large percentage of the proceeds go to support the Ritchie Mansion for future generations. Plus, uh, you had me food. I'm in. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, November 19th at 2 to 4, we will be at Always Buying Books um, yeah. for a book signing. Signing yes. out books. So. Come out, see us. Uh, our books will be available for purchase, signing, etc. And uh, it's going to be fun. And the bookstore's haunted. Absolutely, can't get any more fun than that. I, uh, I I'm excited. In you know, in a future episode, you know, coming up, I think we'll we'll do a deep dive on uh, on our work on our books mm-hmm. and uh, lots of cool stuff. Now, for much of our audience, and I know this going in because I've already had this conversation with a number of people at events that go, is it fiction? And I'm going, Lisa's is nonfiction, mine is fiction. And they go, I don't read fiction. And then they go over to your books. (laughs) And I don't blame them for that. Uh, Your books are excellent. Uh, Highly, highly recommend them. Well, your book is is excellent. it's awesome. Aside from the fact, you know, good place to tell people 
if they are interested in your nonfiction, then they need to go read the articles at stayoftheozarts.net. <laughs> very, very true. I, I write a lot of nonfiction on <laughs> State of the Ozarks, and uh, we're uh, we're looking forward to doing a lot more of that on stateoftheozarts.net. Uh, as uh, at the point that the uh, the the uh, event calendar slows down just a little bit and we enter into the uh, the dark winter months yes we've got things planned so <laughs> <laughs> very very cool excited about that i'm excited to get into the carnegie library in web city i've not I don't, no i have been briefly you've been there but not not for an event so no no it's absolutely beautiful um and historic and been haunted pretty much since it was open. Uh, poltergeist activity, full body apparitions, which actually have been seen on tours before and by guests. Not uh, actually, I have not seen it, so I've not seen the apparition, but other people have. And uh, proceeds help benefit children's programs at the library, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets yep. for all the events that that uh, except for the festival this week and in the Paracon in Kansas can be found at uh, paranormalsciencelab.com. So, absolutely. And and of course, um, State of the Ozarks Fest is free to the public. So we just invite you to pile everybody in the car and come on down. And we uh, we want to do a shout out one two if if you're not listening already. Um, on Branson uh, Podcast Network, um, you can go over there to BransonPodcastNetwork.com and listen to the podcast. Um, and they have it on SoundCloud as well. So um, follow Dark Ozarks there. And a shout out to our other sponsor, Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri, um, yeah. which was just named Best Brewery in Missouri for the second year in a row. Congratulations to the Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Alba is a beautiful, beautiful village, and uh, the the brewery is fantastic. Alba Press, which is the uh, uh, restaurant, or, yeah, is is uh, inside is also fantastic. And not only is the building itself historic and beautiful, but uh, it's also haunted, as is probably the block there's an enormous amount of uh of history within just a few short hundred yards yes. uh, stretch and uh and some of it quite violent it's quite interesting in that regard and uh and gangster related which and gangster related which oh leads us right into our topic i uh, know bonnie clyde stopped by for some stamps <laughs> that's right <laughs> I, that's that's a euphemism where they robbed the post office. That's right. Tried to send a postcard. <laughs> and depending on where where all this was in the time frame, uh, Bonnie might have contemplated mailing some film home, at which point exactly. they, they would not have gone down in infamy. <laughs> yeah, things might have gone differently if she had, <laughs> had mailed it off. <laughs> Oh, unbelievable. The amount of history that is 
under our feet that is just surrounding us constantly is extraordinary. And, and, and if you're listening and watching and you're not in the Ozarks, you're in another location and you're like, Oh my goodness. I just wish I was in the Ozarks where all the cool stuff happened. Thank you. But you know what? Incredible, dark noir history, fascinating history, moving, evocative history of people's lives has all happened where you're at as well and well worth digging into it it really is now now i will say that you know our region does seem to have perhaps more than its fair share i I won't deny that (laughs) Um, and tonight's topic kind of illustrates that so it does so where do you want to dig in first? Well, maybe maybe we should kind of start chronologically with with this, and we're 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 discussing brushes with gangsters and outlaws in Eureka Springs, which a lot of people don't think about when they think about Eureka Springs, Arkansas. So, so maybe we should start with the, with the tales of the James Boys. I like that. And, and of course, just to, to set the stage a little bit, Eureka Springs is an extraordinary, eccentric, and, uh, and, and beautiful uh, location in uh, northwest Arkansas in the Boston Mountains. And uh, it's only about 45 miles, uh, about, you know, 50 minutes uh, from where I live in, in Hollister, Missouri. And it's a beautifully restored uh, Victorian era and Edwardian era town uh, tucked into between two mountains and the ravine, the valley in between. And uh, lots of uh, lots of quirky history, lots of quirky culture, lots of art, um, juxtapositions of things that you, you simply would say, no, those those two things don't go together. And yet in Eureka Springs, they do. It's... Uh, it's it's considered by many uh, to be uh, a vortex location similar to Sedona. Yes, yes. And uh, and and you know, it's I, I think that that's not necessarily unfair. No, I, I no, I'm not. I don't disagree with that. Um, but I just, you know, I think that that has been focused on so much in the last particularly 20, 25 years that the image people often have is quaint mountain town, you know, you know, just Victorian charm. And there were other aspects that went on. In the midst of all the Victorian charm, you you, you had a lot of um, nefarious uh, characters wandering wandering about. You did, and and something that's very important to take into consideration with Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Uh, it was founded on July fourth, eighteen seventy nine, but the history of white settlement into what became Eureka Springs dates back to at least 1856, possibly earlier. I think realistically earlier. Uh, The location 
was uh, a, a makeshift hospital and essentially truce zone during the Civil War. Yes, yes. And, and to be perfectly honest, I think that's one reason that you ended up with a lot of outlaws going through there, because a lot of those outlaws fought in the Civil War, and so we're, fam- we're familiar with the area um, from that time period. It, it's, I think that's very fair. Uh, for folks that may be unfamiliar, uh, the... <clears throat> Eureka Springs in its in its initial development, it was marketed as healing springs, healing waters. And as a result, there was there was a massive influx in population. In a very short period of time from its founding, it had developed a population of over 10,000 people. And then really the uh um, sort of new era of uh, of development took place. Uh, with a lot of influx of cash, yes, and uh, and a lot of the that influx of cash came in the form of uh, of individuals associated with reconstruction of Arkansas after uh, the the collapse of the Confederacy. Yes, and, and along with that, industry and railroad, and the uh, the railroad uh, line. Uh, was built into into Eureka Springs specifically for the purpose of the wealthy having access to tourism in the mountain spa town. And people, I think a lot of people don't necessarily think of uh, the amount of tourism that actually went on during the 19th century. And we see that in Eureka Springs. We see that on Hot Springs. One, mm-hmm. It's outside of, obviously outside of Ozark's coverage, but uh, one of my favorite places to go is Biloxi, Mississippi, and the you know people don't realize that Biloxi, Mississippi, was a big uh, Gulf of Mexico resort town mm-hmm. uh, decades before the Civil War, and the primarily because the railroad was built out from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And there, there's just a number of places like that. Eureka Springs is one of them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, even with all that, um, as the war was over and you had former soldiers, former bushwhackers, um, person rangers turn to um, crime and often against railroads, and then, um, they often traveled these routes, and Eureka Springs was no different. Um, there is um, a legend uh, that goes back a long ways in Eureka Springs and has been in print for a long time, that even before Eureka Springs was a town, that there was a stage stop and tavern uh, on Planer Hill and that it was actually run by a distant relative of Jesse and Frank James. Yes. And And, to me, that's such an interesting tie-in. Yeah. And so um, 
I, I don't I, I haven't found more specific details, but at least that version of the story has been told for a very long time. And so as a result, it would be a place that they would stop that was a safe place to stop. Um, pretty much the same as safe houses for gangsters during the Depression. Um, and um, so there were stories about the James brothers at the tavern at Planer Hill, as well as that they um, would camp at Pivot Rock and, and use it as a, as a location to ambush people. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's hard. I, I don't know exactly what, what the lay of the land and road was around Pivot Rock back then, but I, I don't, I don't know about that one. I, I haven't decided what I think on that one. Well, something that I, <laughs> I find interesting and it's part of the, uh, oh, the, the nostalgia and the romance of the outlaw mm-hmm. is that, you know, certainly at the time, nobody would necessarily want to be associated with the outlaws, but you give them a generation and uh, everybody's looking for everybody. It's a, you know, an exaggeration, but, uh, you know, looking for the, uh, the connection because it's suddenly quite romantic and nostalgic and exciting and mm-hmm. uh, to, to have that. It's, which, I mean, to a certain degree, I can, I can appreciate that, uh, you know, time, time certainly can do that. And, and it's, you know, certainly from, uh, you know, the, the Alf Boland story here in Taney in, uh, in Murder Rocks, it's not unrealistic to, to have that type of activity. No, no. Um, and for me, I, not knowing exactly where the how, how the lay, the rock laid out with the road and and everything, whether how feasible it was, to be able to really ambush someone behind it. Um, it's hard to know because it 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 sit it's pivot up because it sits on a very small base. You know, it's you think of a triangle with a point on the bottom. So I'm <laughs> I'm not sure how many men and horses you're going to hide behind it. Um, but, Very small horses. <laughs> you line them up in a straight line one behind the other. <laughs> it, it takes a lot of effort. Lots of uh, coordination. <laughs> but nobody sneezes. Yeah, no one sneezes. <laughs> but so, and it, it, it's definitely possible, I guess. But I. The, one of the one of the stories that comes out of the Planer Hill uh, Tavern and, and Stage Stop does have more detail, and I, I find it rather sort of interesting. And it, but again, it fits in the mythology of the James Boys just so perfectly. You have to wonder. Mm-hmm. And the the story, and it's told in the book, the Eureka Springs story. Um, and that um, basically a man, a very aged man visited Eureka Springs and asked Sam Lay, uh, Leith rather, who was um, one of the town's guides, uh, to show him a, a, the place where the old stage trail and the stop was. 
uh, two or three miles south of the city. So they went out there and the old man tells the story and he tells the story that was in the 1870s and he had resigned his parish in Ozark, Missouri and to take a church in Pierce City, Missouri. And so he was on the stage going from Ozark, Missouri to Pierce City and they came through there. And there were several men on the stage with him and they were held up by two bandits. And um, that um, they were told to get out of the stage and they robbed the other men and that one of the bandits pulls him aside and says, are you really, are you really a minister? And he says, yes. And says, well, we, we don't, uh, we never steal or take from preachers, widows or orphans. And then puts some of the money they had just taken from the, the other stage writers in his pocket. And, um, then they disappear. And so they get back in the stage and right onto the stage stop. And so, and everyone's quiet and he remarks that he was surprised that the other passengers didn't seem too upset about being robbed or, and that the driver uh, was not surprised. And so he's at the tavern, the inn that night and he hears two men talking in the room next to him and he recognizes the voices as the bandits. Um, whether I, to me, that's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but anyway, unless they had a very unique voice, I don't know. But anyway, he recognizes their voices and, and hears them talking that, debating about whether or not he really was a minister and that they are going to test him the next morning. So he, he thinks and prays on this very long and hard, he says, and then gets up and goes down to breakfast. And sure enough, they're there and he sits down and they walk over. And one who he has decided is um, Frank, uh, puts a gun in his ribs and Jesse sits across from them and they uh, basically quiz him the way he had heard they would. And he answers the questions and they banter, etc. And they end up saying that um, they believe him and, you know, basically good luck on your trip. And if you're ever this way again, you have our protection. <laughs> And I think uh, th th there's, there's an interesting <clears throat> undercurrent of the lore, say, surrounding the James gang mm -hmm. that is not, first of all, there, there are the obvious comparisons to Robin Hood. Yes. Thanks to uh, John Edwards, our, our, our favorite newspaper man from uh, Lexington, Missouri. Yes, and certainly there in both cases, the one you know dating back to just the the lore and others to the uh, the dime novels and the the newspaper articles, et cetera that that took a a handful of 
Western, quote unquote, Western as in West of the Mississippi, uh, Western outlaws and Western lawmen and created iconic figures out of them. Mm-hmm. That there's something deeply that so you back up for a moment. You can debate the the wither twos and the why fours. Uh, up one side and down the other. And certainly there's this a whole almost cottage industry built out of uh, debunking uh, the folklore as opposed to the historical uh, accurate accuracy and that. But I think something that is missed is that the stories that have been either recorded or made up around these characters have a a really unique dynamic that is not dissimilar to uh, the Celtic Fae. Mm -hmm. True. Uh, The the turn of wit, the the willingness to uh, appeal to personal honor. Essentially, if if this uh, civilian in question, sort of the peasant, uh, archetypal character, the the man unawares mm-hmm. had responded badly. He could have been shot. That and they certainly would have taken the money back. Yes, and the willingness to essentially be, for lack of a better term, be a good sport, but have awareness and respect and listen and learn and react appropriately to a, a difficult situation, react with, uh, with tact yet strength, with a sense of with wit and charm and understanding and a willingness to look into the the other world of ambiguity. These are deep archetypal um, forms. They are. And then then the flip side of that is, in, in some ways, it makes a lot of sense just practically because what a lot of people don't realize is that, one, the James boys were, they were highly intelligent. And yes. they were educated. Yes. For the time. In fact, Frank James was well versed in Shakespeare and carried a a volume of Shakespeare even on robberies and and, and quoted it all the time. Um and in this particular instance, I mean, um, you, you, you have the widow stories that go along uh, with the lore. But in this instance, being a minister, um, there may be some affinity there because their father had been a minister. Mm-hmm. And so that may, you know, that may indeed be one reason that they, they would give him more deference Um in leeway than they might other people um as long as he was telling the truth you know <laughs> right and and i think that there's a uh, an element of hmm, very richly contextual can rich contextualization and in a deep textural quality to these interactions that the uh, 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 
a superficial or, or a cursory view of the lore misses that these are these are very not just intelligent but highly complex not just characters but people who are deeply interwoven into this particular culture yes um i think that i think you hit it on the head there i i agree with you i i really do and and i i i do like this story because it's it's a little different than a lot of the uh, Robin Hood, James Boy's stories. So, um, mm-hmm. and in that way, it does kind of make me wonder it, that there might be a little truth to it. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a reason the old man would have made it up and he wasn't seeking uh profit off of it you know mm-hmm. it's this and in, in certainly you know two two of the um documented james gang heists one of them the the, the stagecoach heist in uh, malvern mm-hmm. and then just a short time later uh re- reportedly the first train uh, that they uh, that they stopped or mm-hmm. took uh, in uh, near Marble Hill, Missouri, you know, really speaks to the fact that that the gang was traversing the hills. They were traversing all, all over the Ozarks. Yeah, and in and outside in, the Ozarks as well. I mean. Very much all the way to Cordon, Iowa. Uh huh, and and out to Virginia too. Wow. I, I forgot about the Virginia one, uh, Virginia one, uh, Cordon, Iowa, just in, in Wayne County, Iowa has, uh, um, Jesse James days simply because Jesse James robbed the bank in Cordon. <laughs> and, uh, for, for the, you know, the sort of central, mm, trans, um, you know, Mississippi theater, uh, you know, two counties up into Southern Iowa is a long way north. It is. But, you know, and, and some people will say, well, they couldn't have really gone to all these places, but you can cover a lot of ground on on horseback. And they, you know, they had become very used to that lifestyle during the war and they just they continued it. Yes. Yes, so, they did. I think yeah. it's I, it's very I also think it's interesting for my my knee-jerk response to a lot of this is <laughs> to uh lean toward the the fun and romantic versions of stories anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I I do too. Um and then if if if, if you can it down it's even better but it is sort of it is sort of interesting particularly through this part of the country that it reminds me of you know people tend to claim you know jesse james was here you know sort of the jesse james slept here Mm -hmm. Um, and it very much it is the same as 
back east with, you know, George Washington slept here and then also yes. places a Lincoln slept. Yes. And it, it, it it's kind of interesting that um, you, you have that kind of same kind of following for that fact with Jesse James as you do Washington and Lincoln. I, I think so. And certainly some of the more high-minded and idealistic um, founders of the nation might, you know, looking into the future, be appalled that the, you know, some of the luminaries of, uh, of America's founding are also, you know, held in the same regard as the outlaws, but I kind of doubt it. Well, of course, you, you also have to remember that there were, that, that there, there were a couple of founding fathers who, who were privateers as well. So, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think you know when you when you also look and and of course you're you're <laughs> gonna gonna really dig into some conflicting aspects of the uh, um, American industrialization of the 19th century in this regard, but. The much of the the founding ideals of the United States were posited by by individuals who are willing to uh, put themselves at grave risk from authoritarian structure uh, in order to do what they believed was right. And uh, that's not dissimilar to some of our post Civil War outlaws. Very very much so, and and not surprisingly, they had very much the same heritage ancestry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's 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 certain uh, certain ancestral traits that lean toward uh, individualism, individual freedom, and a whole lot of uh, get up and uh, not back up. Exactly. Not back down and and um, and uh, take take care of oneself. So mm-hmm. and one's family. Yes, that's uh, just a, a powerful, powerful aspect. Now jumping subjects a little bit mm-hmm. uh, straight into uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma's own. Uh, Bill Doolin. Yes. Um, and and ironically, you know, from the perspective of a lot, a lot of the lawmen, um, Doolin actually was considered the, the be- I guess, the, the worst, the best of the worst, uh, you know, uh, outlaws um, uh, that came out of Oklahoma. Actually, he was an Arkansas boy. Uh, born and raised and then um, ended up in Kansas and then in Oklahoma and might have lived out his life working as a farmhand if he hadn't run into the Dalton boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for, you know, I think it's interesting, uh, Bill Doolin, the Dalton guy, these are names that have gone down as, as iconic names in yes. American outlaw history. But just moving back a little bit, 
who were the Daltons? Well, the, the Daltons um, basically were, you know, they, they were out of Oklahoma, too, and they operated mainly Oklahoma and Kansas. Um, and they, they actually had come from a rather well-to-do, uh, respected family, much like the James boys and, and the younger boys. Um, uh, it's sort of ironic. A lot of these anti-folk hero, folk hero outlaws of that time period, you know, they, they, they weren't just you're down and out, um, you know, people from um, no means. Um, it didn't happen that way. But the Daltons um, were one of the more successful games um, that came out uh, a little after the, the James, but um, they were influenced by Jesse James and that led to their demise in Coffeeville because the Daltons wanted to do what Jesse James didn't accomplish, which was to rob two banks at the same time. And of course, uh, when the James boys, the James gang did it in Northfield, Minnesota, and Frank, by the way, Frank James wasn't there. He had left. That's after he had, they'd had the kind of falling out. Um, And that's when the game really kind of fell apart. Um, And so the Daltons, you know, wanted to basically one up Jesse James. And it just happened that Bill Doolin wasn't there that day. Mm -hmm. And there's there's various versions of why. One was that he was trying to replace his horse and didn't make it there. Uh, Emmett Dalton, who was the only Dalton to survive the raid, basically said that uh, his brother had kicked him out for, for not being mentally stable, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. In fact, if you look at it, Bill Doolin ultimately was probably the most successful outlaw in Oklahoma um, and did manage eventually to rob two banks in one day. <laughs> it's uh, thing good, got to get, good, to, good to get those <laughs> Who, who ironically was happened to be in the area, um, um, happened to be in the area filming a movie. Uh, he was producing, this is in 1915, was producing a movie uh, about the passing of the Oklahoma outlaws um, and heard that uh, Doolin and his gang were in town and literally went into town with this film crew trying to get the real shot. Wow. <laughs> and then he, and, and, and then he, then he shot, uh, shot him in the leg and captured him. And then he later escaped. So. History imitating art, art imitating life, life imitating history. Right. But that, but that, that actually was later. Um, um, the, you know, um, the, uh, but in uh, Eureka Springs, um, one of the other guardsmen, I think it was Madsen, had, had shot him previously in Ingalls. And so he, uh, Doolin had gone to Eureka Springs to take the waters for arthritis. Yes. And, and I think, Again, I think that that's a 
you know, very realistic, it ties in with the the tourism base of the town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and in fact, one statement, uh, they, they said that uh, Doolin later said that um, he saw he saw uh, Tillman come in. And it didn't, he didn't, re- he knew him, but he didn't recognize him because he never thought they'd just send one guy. <laughs> oh, love it. I, um, do we know, is there, is there documentation uh, stating which bathhouse? Uh, yes, it does. It does appear that, um, uh, it was the Basin Spring Bathhouse. Uh, there are some some um, sources that say the Basin Park, but the Basin Park wasn't built yet. Uh, right. When this happened in, I think, 1896. And, uh, right, right. So, um, and the, the Basin Spring Bathhouse um, the, the there was a fire in the building 40 or 50 years ago and it's been redone and there's two businesses and the building still exists yes i've i've been in that building oh. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a beautiful beautiful structure and it's and it's an iconic part of downtown yeah but but from what i I've seen it referenced and then other people, other places say the basin part, but the basin part doesn't make sense. So that's my guess. Yeah. I think that would be fair. Of course, we're, we're for people who are super sticklers for detail, we're conjecturing right at the moment, just a little bit. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated to do more research on this and for the, the, where this is apparently leading us uh, for, if you're familiar with downtown Eureka Springs, it is uh, uh, the, the, the big bathhouse. It has a number of shops in it at this point, yeah. but it's where the uh, the walking bridge crosses Mud Street. Yeah, yeah, and it is. And it's just across from the Basin Spring. Yes, yes, and so, and and, and realistically, that seems to me make make a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, so yeah, Doolin was there taking the waters, and um, uh, and ironically, uh, Tillman had disguised himself as a as a preacher. Interesting. And he he was having he had spotted him, and then he they didn't say uh, some sort of carpenter or you know furniture maker. He he uh, was having him fashion a box that he could carry his gun in, and then it would do a quick release so the box would drop because he didn't want to openly carry his gun while he's pretending to be a, a preacher and alerting Doolin. I'm not sure how carrying the box wouldn't look odd, but I don't know. And... Uh, but while that's being done, he sees him again at the bathhouse, and he just he just goes in and and gets him anyway. Yes, and Tillman. And we're back. 
Yes. A <laughs> uh, couple of technical issues. Uh, work those through. And uh, but what I was saying was Tillman is is such an interesting person, and this this entire era, we we've reached the point that it, it's clear that pop culture of, of the era, say 1915 into the 1920s, recognizes that the old West is passing. It is deserving of, of publication, is deserving of, of history. It's also deserving of um, notoriety in pop culture in the form of making movies about it. Tillman is a filmmaker at this point, yes. not just a lawman. And yet he is still this is still what he's doing. He's still participating and, mm -hmm. and contributing to this history and ultimately ends up getting shot as a lawman. Yeah, he does. in the, in the early 1920s in Cromwell, um, um, basically called in by the governor to, to clean up the town at, in the, in a oil field and ends up getting killed. Yes. And, you know, it, just the, the themes of art imitating life, life imitating art at this liminal space, this threshold between uh, a pre-industrialized or a, a, a embryonically industrialized Old West transitioning into a modern industrialized era. To me, it's fascinating. And the Ozarks are right smack dab in the middle of it. It, it really is interesting. And I think sort of the sort of the transition then is the Henry Starr um, gang, um, even though Henry Starr is not there, sort of their last hurrah is actually robbing the bank of Eureka Springs. Um, and uh, it's kind of interesting because um, I think 1922, um, and these are guys who had robbed banks on horses, and now they now they're robbing using cars. And they had decided they were going to rob the bank at noon because or five afternoons so that uh, people be at lunch. And their watch was off by an hour, and so it's actually eleven when they get there. And um, ironically, there was a new guy in the gang who, who basically said, are you sure this is a good idea? Henry Starr and another member who they both were in jail at that point uh, had told them Eureka Springs is a death trap. Mm. And George Price was running the, the gang at the time. And he says, oh, no, it'll be fine. And of course, they all they get caught. Yes. Um, and, and the guy who questioned it ends up going to prison. <laughs> it figures. Yep. And yeah. so, you know, really interesting, you know, and I think that's kind of the transition um, between the between the Old West and then the, the Depression era gangs. And ironically, uh, one of the member, one one of the um guys that was there was Arkansas Tom, who his real name was Roy Doherty, but he had been in the Dalton game. Yes. And he ultimately ended up being killed in Joplin in a shootout with the police in about 1924-25. 
So um, it, it's just kind of interesting, you know, you, you have that motif and these figures. And another interesting uh, item on Tillman, he, uh, um, I, I read somewhere he tended to carry a volume of Shakespeare with him. <laughs> Somehow that's not terribly surprising. No, no. And so, you know, it just made me think maybe he and Frank James had a little bit in common. But, um, I that, think that's fair. Did, in regards to Eureka Springs being a death trap for the, the, the bank robbery, did, I'm, I'm assuming that it was in part because of the, the hills and the difficulty of getting out, but I don't know. That would that would be my guess is that, you know, Henry Starr was saying you don't want to try to rob something in Eureka Springs because you're going to you're not going to get out of there before they catch you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's just the way I took it. Yeah. And certainly different than some of the, the wide open spaces that you could make a run for it. Exactly. And if, if that's what he was meaning, he was right. right. <laughs> Oh, not, not inaccurate. It's, hmm, there's, there's just, to me, and of course, um, not necessarily aiding in a getaway from Eureka Springs, but an aspect of the, hmm, uh, of that demographic coming to Eureka Springs is it was not far from Indian Territory. That's right. And of course, you know, but by that point, by that point, you know, it wasn't Indian Territory anymore. It was Oklahoma. And, right. you know, they had um, really cracked down and, um, you know, sort of an interesting point about Henry Starr was, you know, uh, he was distantly related to Sam Starr, who was married to uh, Bell Starr, but um he had he had been sentenced to death twice by Isaac Parker, um, the hanging judge in Port Smith, and um, actually helped stop a prison break. And so they had uh, shortened his sentence, and he actually uh, was pardoned uh, by uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And then he couldn't stay. He couldn't stay. Um, on the straight and narrow and ended up robbing Bates in Oklahoma again and um, got caught at uh, Stroud. Um, and that's mm. that's why he wasn't with the gang in Eureka Springs. Wow. Just the, mm, the interlocking processes that, that seemingly tie all of this together mm-hmm. to me is fascinating. It really, it really is to me as well. Um, and uh, so I, I think one of the, maybe one takeaway is that of all places in the Ozarks that you, you, you don't associate with gangsters and outlaws, uh, you know, maybe, maybe gambling and drinking, that kind of thing, but, but, but not, you know, not Old West outlaws and, and, Depression era gangsters is Eureka Springs, and uh, but that's not necessarily the case. It's not, and you know some of some of aspects of that history, and then transitioning into gangster history in association with some some very big names. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Can you lose you? Are you there? Yes. Okay. It, it cut out for a second. Yeah, did on my side as well. Okay. Um, you might just repeat that, that last sentence. Uh, just the, the t- there's, you know, the, the history of mm, essentially outlaw turned gangster, gangster history um, really continued into mid-century in the Ozarks, as well as, as specifically in Eureka Springs. And yeah. uh, Native Goblin is not excluded from that as well. <laughs> very true, very true. And um, and actually, one of the more infamous events um, in this part of the country in that time period, the, the Kansas City Massacre, um, uh, has some connection to Eureka Springs because um, the... Uh, the massacre happened because, um, well, depending on on the version, either um, Vern Miller and Rochetti and Pretty Boy Floyd were trying to um, either kill Jelly Nash so he couldn't talk, or were trying to rescue him from the U.S. Marshals um, as they were bringing him up. Um, and... Uh, there's a story that at one point, you know, he was hiding out in Eureka Springs um, for a while, trying yeah. to evade them. And as he's traveling through the Arkansas Ozarks, you know, he ends up being arrested. And um, then um, uh, ultimately taken up to Kansas City where everything goes bad for everybody pretty much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and by some accounts, even Al Capone got involved uh, in the aftermath. So um, because um, Vern Miller, who's, a, who's also a fascinating character because he started out as a um, World War I, well, actually even before World War I in the Army, um, and then serving in World War One, becoming a lawman in South Dakota, actually founding uh, the American Legion in the area that he was uh, a lawman, uh, but became known to be very quick on the trigger. And then he and his wife left for a vacation, never came back. And then they found out he'd been embezzling money. Um and then he hooked up with the mafia in New York, and then he ends up basically working with Pretty Boy Floyd and, and Jelly Nash, and it's reputed that he um, was instrumental in, in, in uh, the massacre, uh, along with um, Harry Bailey, who was known as the Dean of American bank robbers who was uh from Joplin and lived in Joplin and worked with uh Harold Farmer who had the largest safe house in the Midwest here in Joplin and um uh stories went that shortly after the massacre that Miller was basically hauled into Chicago um uh by Al Capone and trying to figure out what the hell happened and um, uh, that they were after um, 
Tory um, Boy Floyd and him that they were trying to put a lid on it because they because the massacre was basically uh, putting everyone in danger. And it, it ultimately led to the FBI uh, gaining a lot more law enforcement power. Right. And, you know, the 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 case of of Vern Miller, there's a couple of things that was really striking to me mm-hmm. uh, about the Vern Miller situation. One, of course, is from, is from Iowa. And that's you know where my family's from. Yeah. Originally, you know, yeah. So this is a, uh, you know, some personal aspects of that. But uh, as the, was the, Heck the, Thomas, who who was one of the deputies with Tillman, bringing in Doolin. Yes. So lots of lots of cultural and uh, geographical connections there. Obviously, um, a, a big part uh, of Vern Miller's story that stood out to me was that. Uh, allegedly, his first embezzlement case took place because his wife had fallen ill and he was trying to pay her medical bills. Yeah. And I found that mm, tragic, really, mm-hmm. in in the sense. And, and, and at the time that it took place, he was a lawman. Yeah. And well, and, and fairly respected. Yes. And, you know, the then getting convicted, you know, for embezzlement and basically it upending his life mm-hmm. in this regard. Um, he ends I, up, I, I was interested in his practicality because he had he had a lot of community leaders who offered to pay uh, pay his bond to let him out, which was ten thousand dollars. But it was cheaper to take the convention. Mm. <laughs> oh very fair it's it's that you know that to me that and of course he he ends up splitting with his with his wife um and his his new girlfriend seems to be rather enthusiastic about a life of crime yeah. <laughs> at least for a while <laughs> yes um and then at the Oh, in essence, at the the end of things, that he is essentially acting as a hired gun. Yeah, and and he he's living as a hired gun. He ultimately dies as a heart as a hired gun. There's you know so, some compelling uh, allegations that. He's he's killed because he's a liability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and potentially killed by people that he was working for, or you know, in in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. And the, to me, this is you know, I've I've watched my share of machine gun gangster movies from this era and mm-hmm. etc. and. Certainly, you have your your protagonist, you have your antagonist, and then around the bad guy, you have a, a handful of hired guns, mm-hmm. and they, you know, for the for the way that the script is written, these guys they're there to look tough, they're there to kill somebody, but that's as far as the script goes. What is very interesting to me with the Vern Miller story is 
his biography tells the rest of that story of how he got to the point uh, of acting in that that capacity to being hired in that capacity and to me that is both tragic and fascinating it really it, it really is because i mean and he does, he goes through such a metamorphosis so to speak um kind of reminds me of the charlie barter story um who uh, was grand you know grandson and son of some of the Staffelback murderers and, and yes. becomes war hero and then then a policeman and then basically ends up uh, having mental problems and 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 committing suicide by cop. Um, yes. Uh, there there was a very similar trajectory between him and Vern Miller and uh, except for that Charlie did not ultimately work with the mafia. Right. And it's uh, just the, the, the cautionary tale, I suppose, or the, mm-hmm. the aspect that the, the line between hero and villain, as remembered by history, can just be a handful of small events. Yes, a handful of small decisions, too, you know, um, um, in several places that it could have gone in a different direction, it looked like. It it does. And, you know, it it, it looks like his wife, Mildred, his first wife, Mildred's um, illness in 1922 proved the catalyst. Yeah. Yeah, it very much looks like if that hadn't happened, none of that, none of the resulting um, crimes, et cetera, may have happened. Yes. It's, there's, again, and, and you know, you, you, it, it brings to mind, of course, for me, you know, accounts of, for example, war heroes, uh, et cetera, who are experienced, you know, who's suffering through accolades and say things to the line of, you know, I don't deserve it or I don't want to talk about it. Right. Exactly. And the, the idea, and of course, I'm, I'm all for honoring our veterans and honoring the past services of, of our, our, our men uh, and women uh, in, in all of these capacities and remembering what they've done. It's just to me fascinating because... Certainly the, the actions, I suppose, mm, devoid of the contextualization. But, you know, if you're in the war, if you're in the line of duty and it involves not just arrest, but quite frankly, killing people. Mm-hmm. And then you come home and they're going, yeah, you're a hero. Uh, but then change the contextualization. You embezzled $6,000 to 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 you know pay for your wife and now you're a villain well and and you know flip that back around to where we started that's pretty well the story for the james boys and a lot of people coming out of the civil war whether we want to admit it or not Mm -hmm. and uh and i think that especially with the james gang you know the the fact that they're Mm, their their civilian targets were 
in their minds, military targets. Often, yes. Because they and, equated them with their enemy, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Union uh, became synonymous with uh, industrialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and economic progress in the form of the banks and uh, uh, union banks in particular, union bank companies and and railroads and railroads <laughs> and you know it's it's that well, there there was a there was a short period of time, particularly in Missouri history, that Missouri was almost exclusively agrarian. Mm-hmm. A uh, few railroads. You had the uh, the the romantic and uh, often deadly uh, riverboat transit. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> and, uh, and beyond that, to such a large degree, it was either a slow wagon or a fast horse. Pretty much. <laughs> and and I can't help but think. Uh, you know, for, for many of the people who vicariously experienced uh, a sense of pride or a sense of protection with the, the, the actions of the James Gang and others, it was a sense that everything that they knew about their lives was, was being forced to change. Exactly. Um, with absolutely no um, control over it. No. No. And and that, you know, for, you know, obviously the majority of the population did not become James gangs. Right. Um, but they could cheer uh, sometimes very quietly mm-hmm. for, for the for the individuals that did stand up. Exactly. And, you know, it's and, and we've mentioned this before, it's easy to you know, say, oh, you shouldn't talk about these things or you shouldn't, you know, you're glamorizing, you know, these things, uh, you know, or, you know, crime or whatever. And that's not, that's not really the case. You, you know, you have to understand the contest it all happened in and, and how it was viewed at the time and why. Yes. I think, Although, to be honest, I think a lot of people take that view because they don't want to admit there could be circumstances that they may be cheering someone on. <laughs> Agreed. And, and it, it's, it, it's also, the, I think, the, the, the myopic approach to choose not to contextualize our history properly. True. I, I agree. And and. Unfortunately, since history tends to be taught as a survey um, and very superficially, um, I, I think as you know, it almost becomes a knee-jerk reaction to view everything in history that way. I agree. I agree. It's it's difficult to, especially if you approach history as something that's boring. It's difficult to really dig into the contextualization and the nuance and the emotion that goes into the decisions, why, why certain things happen. And the fact that 
there, there are aspects, in some cases, economic aspects, mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, infrastructure aspects that the Ozarks in particular uh, are, are still responding to from the Civil War. Mm -hmm. We don't like to admit that, but it's, it's, the, it's the truth. Yeah, the, the idea that that's supposed to have been so long ago, it would no longer have any impact upon uh, upon today. <laughs> that, that, that's just our uh, our uh, present uh, instant uh, uh, experience society that if it hasn't happened in the last five minutes, it doesn't exist. <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, the, the, the ideas we referenced Shakespeare, the fact that uh, you know, Shakespeare's works were impacting uh, these men in the, in the 19th century, they continue to impact in the 20th century. And I think they'll continue, Shakespeare's words will continue to resonate and impact individuals far into the future. Uh, and these were, these were words that were written down in the early 1600s during James yep. I. I mean, sixth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both. Both, <laughs> technically. <laughs> no, very, very much the case. And it's just that bad when you think about it, it's humbling. It is. And, and I think, but I think part of what keeps us from wanting to think along those lines is that there's a there's a threat that what we do mm -hmm. may be resonating down through the generations and we don't like that idea we we want our actions to be first of all we don't we we want everyone to be able to contextualize our decisions right now yeah um but second of all i don't think that we want how the you know to deal with the uh, uh, the weight that the decisions that we make are impacting not just the next generation but perhaps multiple generations hundreds of years into the future. Very true, and you know, um, generational guilt is a horrible thing, I guess. <laughs> Especially when uh, you know applied to oneself, and then. <laughs> projected forward into an unknown future <laughs> that's uh, no. that's worth at least six existential crises right there that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to bring nietzsche into this though <laughs> oh my gosh when don't we need to bring nietzsche into this <laughs> <laughs> okay fair statement <laughs> I embrace my nihilism with espresso. Yeah. <laughs> How much nihilism do I have? How much coffee do you want? <laughs> oh, I embrace nihilism with whatever form of caffeine is at hand. So. Yes. Caffeine or alcohol, either one. Sometimes both right. at the same time. It's a good combination. <laughs> oh my gosh. That might be a good place to, to wrap things up. 
yeah, we've devolved to nihilism, so that might be, <laughs> it, it might be a it's a spot. cheerful. It's a cheerful nihilism. It's okay. That's that's true. That's true. <laughs> we appreciate everybody, and um, we'll be back next week. And uh, you know, check out the events coming up, and we'd love to see y'all. So absolutely, and Thank we just. You. And we just really appreciate the support everyone's giving. Yes, we do. And of course, thank you, Lisa. And thank you to our producer, Alex. Thanks, Josh. And thanks, everyone. And thanks, Alex.